Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Heart Speaks. I'm your host, Chloe Valdery. In this podcast, I will be speaking with Winston Marshall, former banjo player of the world-renowned band Mumford & Sons, which, as some of you may know, is actually one of my all-time favorite bands ever. We spoke about many interesting topics, including the ethics of nationalism, including Christianity and my relationship to Christianity, as well as other riveting topics that you will be surely excited to hear. One quick note, I was in the middle of moving offices when I filmed this podcast, and unfortunately, I could not use my camera, and so I had to use just regular Zoom through my computer And so both the quality of the sound and the screen is not the best, but I promise you the content is still pretty dope. So without further ado, here's Winston Marshall on the Heart Speaks podcast. It sounds like you've been making the rounds a lot in terms of having conversations with people. I was looking at your Twitter this morning uh, to sort of catch up. And <laughs> that's, the, that's the vibe that I, that I was getting. Is that true? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I feel like I've been very slow because you invited me a while ago and we met in New I'm now speaking, assuming that this is part of the show, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Uh, okay, <laughs> it's, cool. it's, very inf- it's very informal if you couldn't tell. Okay. Um, so I'm giving extra details, assuming that people won't know, though, even though you will know, um, obviously. Yeah. But we, you and I met in January in New York, I think. Yeah. And we, I'd come across you and your writing, I think, in 2020. And okay. I was, I was hoping to meet you anyway, and we we met at this dinner, and I didn't, I didn't expect to see you there, and that was that was awesome. And uh, why I found you interesting is that I initially, I think I came across some of your tweets, and I, I thought I liked that you were kind of again to uh, you were dispelling or, or breaking up her mentality on whatever issues were hot in 2020. But then I looked into you, and I, I think on your handle you had because the your enchantment theory of enchantment is uh, anti-racist. Yeah. Um, training. And at the time, I think I just read Robin DiAngelo's book. Uh, um, <laughs> White Fragility, yeah. White Fragility. And so a word like anti-racist, <laughs> I think it I got treated off. or something. It threw you off, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? What's, what's going on here? Like, yeah. um, But it was good because your thinking is very original and hard to pin down. And then when we spoke in New York, you got to explain your program. And I thought, yeah, this like, I'm fully behind this. and and. If this is what anti-racist training is, I mm. think more more of it. Um, I, I love that it was. Um, there's such good faith in your approach to it. it it's uh, it, you, you. It's about appreciating that there's probably deeper psychological things going on. Yeah. And it's not about uh, creating enemies or or rather creating goody baddies. It's more about uh, engaging with the individual on on a on a really emotional and human level. How's how's everything going with the with the program? It's going really well. I mean, theory of enchantment. I said to a friend the other day, theory of enchantment was really an attempt to make myself whole, and then it just happened to become this kind of it. It, it happened to take on a life of its own. But that's ultimately its origin story, and it's going well. I mean, we have a lot of clients and growing a growing uh, batch of clients as well. And we really think it's going to take off, hopefully, as the as like the number one, I mean, hopefully, anti-racism <laughs> approach. And it's very nuanced because the human being is a very complex, nuanced being. And it's very much rooted in an appreciation of that and for that. And this idea that the human being is constantly becoming. The human being is not a static, fixed thing, but rather constantly becoming dynamic being. Emphasis on the being part. I think we've lost sight of that, of what that word really suggests uh in our lexicon so yeah it's going really well when, when you say it, it started as trying to make yourself whole what do you mean yeah. by that? What, what was what was happening then so at the time there's a lot going on but one of the things that was i think very resonant with me was i was breaking away from the religious upbringing that i had had so I grew up Christian, but very much non-traditional <laughs> Christian. So I grew up as a Christian that was observing a lot of 
Jewish holidays on the one hand, and then on the other hand was also uh, not observing mainstream Christian holidays like Christmas and Easter. And the church I grew up in was also extremely conservative in a dogmatic sense, uh, but like very, very extreme right, right wing. And I had had an encounter in college right before I went to the Wall Street Journal to work on the theory of enchantment. I'd had an encounter in college with a liberal professor who was also agnostic. So I automatically assumed that she was like persona non grata, basically. (laughs) Um, And there was this film that she had us watch. The The name of the class was like Anthropology of Religion or something like that. And there was a film she had us watch, which was a documentary about evangelical Christians and it didn't it didn't portray the people very well and the next day I got back to class and there's this atheist in the class who started ranting against these people and my agnostic liberal professor started to defend the evangelical Christians which was a totally paradoxical thing that I wasn't expecting to happen and it totally shattered my like paradigm because my paradigm I was just putting people in boxes. If you belong to this category, then you're good. If you belong to this category, then you're bad. And she totally shattered that. And so that really, I think, was the catalyst for the theory of enchantment, (laughs) ultimately. Because I, I was realizing that like, I was caricaturing people and I was also caricaturing myself. And if you grow up with an existential framework that basically says that the meaning of life is the way you're categorizing people, and then that shatters. You're basically in a, in a free fall and you have to learn how to reconstruct yourself or make sense of your identity in a whole new way. And so that was really a big impetus for creating the theory of enchantment. So how did you get from there to actually starting the, to being, being at the Wall Street Journal then? And, and well, at the time, so my major was international studies and I was focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And at the time I was writing a lot of, well, not a lot, but I was writing articles about this topic and also doing advocacy work, Israel advocacy work on my campus. And so I, I had begun to be noticed by different uh, people in the field, as they say. And long story short, Brett Stevens ended up becoming my mentor and he told me to apply for what's called the Bartley Fellowship Program at the Wall Street Journal. And I did, and I I got in, and that's how I was able to work at the Wall Street Journal on, um, first of all, articles about foreign policy in general, but then eventually the theory of enchantment thesis that I wrote for for the last nine months that I was at the journal. What's this, this... Is it sort of sounds like a Jews for Jesus type background? Oh, what, usually, what is, the is it a big what? It, what denomination is it? What? So it's not it's not Jews for Jesus. Like we didn't consider ourselves Jewish. It's non denominational. It's more similar to Seventh Day Adventists, if you're familiar with that uh, denomination. So Seventh Day Adventists is a small sect of Christianity that they call themselves Seventh Day because they go to church on Saturday instead of Sunday. And basically, I think the common theme in a lot of these different smaller Christian sects is that they basically follow the Old Testament (laughs) as opposed to uh, saying that the Old Testament is done away with. Um, So that was a common common thing growing up. Okay. And so so then you're... That developed into a kind of appreciation for Israel as a, as exactly. a, as a country. Exactly. That, that developed into an appreciation for Israel and, a, and a, a really, a real allergy to anti-Semitism. And you, and, and, and you told me a story about when we met in, in January about uh, it was anti-Semitism specifically that you're experiencing in America that the kind of anti-racist idea was, mm-hmm. that was the kind of seed of the anti-racist yes. program. Is, is that right? So two things were happening in my life when I created the, well, when I wrote about theory of enchantment. The first thing was what I just described. The second thing that was happening was, I think something like, I was seeing anti-Semitism develop in, uh, or first of all, I was seeing it in the news. So I was seeing it, it was happening in France. Uh, There was like shootings in Toulouse at the time, this was 2012. Um, There was talk about the Iran deal and you saw the Ayatollahs sort of saying that they're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So all of these news items were influencing my, uh, I guess, had anti-Semitism on my radar. So it wasn't anti-Semitism in a domestic sense. It was more in the sort of like geopolitical sense. 
And that is what made me want to fight against it. And so then I started doing Israel advocacy. But then I noticed that Israel advocacy suffered from the same things that my experience with my religion suffered from, which was a kind of dogmatic us versus them binary way of thinking. And it wasn't until I stopped reading Israeli polemics or I guess political books about Israel and started reading Israeli literature that I began to say, ah, I've been doing this wrong this entire time. Um, And the reason for that is that literature in general and Israeli literature in particular is able to present a language that can capture the messiness of the human condition as it pertains to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a way that doesn't dehumanize Israelis or Palestinians. Whereas if you enter the political sphere, especially today, almost inevitably, you get into binary ways of thinking. You get into that, you know, if you're in this box, you're good. If, if you're in that box, you're bad. And so once I started reading Israeli literature, that's when I was given really a better vocabulary to find a way to love Israel, which is different from idolizing Israel. And I think so much of my advocacy was actually informed by an idolization as opposed to love, which requires acceptance of the messiness, of the imperfections, of the shortcomings of another people, even as it requires acceptance of the messiness and the imperfections and the shortcomings of yourself. So that was that was certainly a huge piece of the puzzle that created Theory of Enchantment. I've got two questions for you about that. And so firstly, what specifically was the literature you read? What books mm. should I be reading then? That, yeah. That inspired that? Or maybe give me one or two. I don't want to not like reading. <laughs> yes. Set me off. Set me in the direction. And then the other question is you to show a, to, to care about anti-Semitism, and but then you're you're jumping to caring about Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Those are separate things. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, obviously they're linked. But yeah, to, you can care about anti-Semitism without being a Zionist, for example. Sure. Or you might be more sympathetic to Palestine when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict, but also care about anti-Semitism across the world. How how did you make that step from anti-Semitism to caring uh, specifically about, to, to the point that you were advocating for Israel? Yeah, I think for me, and I'm trying to remember because this was a long time ago. But <laughs> I think for me, it was it was a lot of things. It was understanding that, that it was kind of unfair to see every other people be given the, or be recognized for their rights to national self-determination, except for the Jews. Um, I thought historically that that was certainly a part of anti-Semitism. But it was also, and this is much more of a, I would say, do you know Reinhold Niebuhr? Are you familiar no. with it? Oh my God. What's that? <laughs> you should definitely read his works. He was like a really famous 20th century Protestant theologian. It really brilliant. And I think that there's this, when it comes to anti-Zionism in particular, I think that there's this sense that nationalism all nationalism is, I'm going to, um, what do you call it? The opposite of uh, straw manning. I'm going to steel man anti-Zionism for a second. Um, <laughs> the idea that all nationalism is flawed because nationalism inherently means some kind of othering of people who don't belong to that nationalistic identity, right? America notwithstanding, you know, America's a little bit different, but most countries, most nations have a very specific manifestation or very specific people who they claim to be fulfilling the national rights of. And so if I were to steal man anti-Zionism, I would say it's a form of anti-nationalism and it perceives nationalism as a great evil. The, I think, Niebuhrian retort to that would be that there's no such thing as a world with without imperfection. In other words, the idea that we can move to this sort of like teleologically utopian state where there's there's so much there's like absolute perfection and no mistakes are made and blood is on no one's hands and even in the pursuit of justice, blood is on no one's hands. 
I think that's a fundamentally flawed understanding of the human condition. And I don't think it's desirable either. And I, I grew up with this sort of teleological idea, the idea that the world is moving towards a fixed state or a perfect state in which human beings will be perfect and it will be a utopia and we will all live in absolute perfection with each other. And James Carth has also influenced my thinking on this um, in his book, Finite and Infinite Games, where he says, actually, the pursuit of evil, or excuse me, the uh, pro- proliferation of evil often comes when people try to completely eradicate evil from the face of the earth, um, because they're basically not realizing that we're all in a fallen state. So I think when it comes to nationalism and when it comes to anti-Zionism in particular, I am very much pro-self-determination for all peoples. And I know that self-determination, national self-determination, national self-actualization presupposes by definition, that mistakes will be made, that sins will be committed, and that harm will be done. But I think that the very fabric of reality would cease to exist if that wasn't a possibility. And I think that historically speaking, certainly in the West, it is a curious thing, not simply to tell Jewish people that they're not entitled to self-determination, but to also tell them, essentially, that they're not allowed to make mistakes. And I think this is a different argument from what I would have said in, back in the day when I was in college. There's this underlying, I think, idea within anti-Zionism that the Jews and the Jews alone are not allowed to make mistakes on a nationalistic level. Now, obviously, we would want the Jewish people to get better, like we would want any person or any group of people to get better at doing whatever it is they're doing on a nationalistic level. But I do think that anti-Zionism has this particular, uh, makes this particular exception in that it says that the Jews alone are not able to self-actualize in a national way and are not able to make mistakes because they're not able to self-actualize, which presupposes that mistakes will be made in the first place. That was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> the the retort by sorry, with what's his, the name of, with an N? New, new, Niebuhr, Niebuhr. Niebuhr. Yeah, Reinhold Niebuhr. Yeah. So his retort in the by saying that the world is imperfect and mistakes will happen is a, is a defensive. It's not really an argument for something. It's a, it's a defensive something. Whereas uh, the right to determination, uh, as you describe it. It is it, or self determination is mm-hmm. is the positive argument, and actually, there's yes. a, I, I, is, did he make that case, or are you making that case? Um, did he make which case? That one's the, positive the, and one's the, negative. The, the Jews have a, or let's say, if you're anti nationalism altogether, the the right to self determination is that you're saying that you, you think is that your argument or his argument? Sorry, um, it's a combination. <laughs> okay, well, there's an Israeli. Uh, writer, a conservative writer called Yoram Hazori, who mm-hmm. wrote a book called, I think it's called The Case for Nationalism. Mm-hmm. And this was this book actually kind of spun me out a little bit because I mm. nationalism, nationalism for me has always been a dirty word. Mm. Uh, and, and I was brought up, you know, understanding uh, Nazism and, and in, in that sense, it was an evil ideology. And, and, and then this book uh, where he talks about the history of nationalism very much about self-determination. Uh, and it doesn't mean any sort of jingoism. It doesn't mean attacking uh, your neighbours. Uh, quite the contrary, he, he uses the Old Testament. Um, and and uh, fortunately, I read it a few years ago, so I, 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 it isn't totally fresh to mind. But he, he shows how it is almost nas- nationalistic scripture or, or this need for a Jewish homeland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very much about loving the neighbours outside that uh, nation. Um, that, so there is a there is a sort of positive argument for nationalism there, although that's, you know, that I'm sure will be spun in all sorts of uh, bad faith. I am, ways there. I am familiar with uh, Yoram Hazoni's work. I don't know. I mean, he always strikes me as his, his writing, and I haven't read the book, but I've read some of his articles. His writing strikes me as not being sufficiently honest about the perils of nationalism. Uh, nationalism is not a, a per- perfect thing. Again, I, I'm very hesitant to adopt this idea that like this one container for some human experiment is perfect and ideal, even if humans fall short of it. I mean, there's no such thing really. And so one of the things I find very 
lacking in his thesis is the serious and easy ways in which nationalism can give way to jingoism and can give way to, you know, all of those kind of stereotypical things that we associate with nationalism, which is why I do think the sort of defense of nationalism from the more negative perspective is a, arguably a more honest perspective, which is to say that obviously we want to, mm. con- obviously we want to contain those impulses, which of course exists mm. within every single one of us, we want to contain those impulses, but it is the failure to give human beings the chance to be imperfect or to acknowledge that human beings are imperfect. That is really what's the core of the problem with, an- with any form of anti-nationalism. Mm. I think I get a little bit tripped up, or I used to get tripped up on the word itself, where mm. because nationalism, I mean, because nationalism has all those other con- negative connotations, maybe we need a new word like nation-stateism. Mm. Uh, but, but, but at the same time, you don't want to ignore all those evil tendencies that can occur. So maybe it's not helpful to go yeah. all, all the way in that and direction. I, yeah, and I think that the problem with, one of the other problems with anti-nationalists and with anti-Zionists in particular is that they fail to understand that those very impulses that they dislike are not going to suddenly disappear if the nation state disappears. It's going to manifest Mm. in a completely different iteration, but they're baked into the human, into human nature, right? The, and that comes from a psychological foundation. And again, it's this utopian mindset that, I mean, it's certainly tripped me up in the past, but I think that that's what continues to trip us up today because we see ourselves as potentially hurling towards this future perfect utopian state which is not in my opinion not a thing <laughs> i mean it, no, that's that the would... progressive fallacy the, mm. the the arc towards i don't i don't believe at all i'm not sure this is what implying that that we're that the universe is you know this long arc towards more justice i, I don't mm. think that at all there's plenty of examples in history where evil and and justice Look at the 20th century after sure. all this long art, and there's never more evil in one in one period of time. Sorry, that that's what you meant. Well, the paradox, I was talking to a friend about this last week. The paradox is that human beings are teleological. We are purpose-driven. We are goal-oriented, right? But the universe is not. And so how do you reconcile these two things? This is something that I'm working on within myself as a matter of self-work because I grew up with such a framework that claimed that the universe was teleologically moving towards something when in fact it's not. And I've found solace in studying a lot of wisdom traditions from the East to balance the wisdom traditions from the West that I was raised Mm. with. But that seems to me to be one of the biggest dilemmas for us to make sense of, because we are goal-oriented and we are purpose-driven. That's part of what it means to be human. And yet the universe is not. And so how do we make sense of that is the question. So what's the, can you expand on that dilemma? Sorry, just you'll have done more thinking on this than me. So how does that dilemma manifest itself? I mean, I can try. I don't know if I fully... uh... fleshed it out for myself. So I'll give you an example. I'm trying to work on the art of relationship for me in my personal life. And what I've realized is that relationship is not some separate thing that exists out apart from me. Relationship is the very fabric of the universe. If you study physics, quantum physics, for example, this is what we've come to know. Like everything is relational. And so I've been studying a lot of young and Jungian writers who are super into the art and practice of relationship. And so there's a central question of what does it mean to relate to both oneself and to another human being and to constantly practice that. Relationship is, in a way, goalless, right? The purpose of a relationship is actually not to get to some other place. The purpose of a relationship is to learn how to relate. And it's hard to shift from a previous dichotomy, which saw relationship as this separate thing, as this kind of also like baggage heavy thing. Um, it's hard. To, it's also hard to shift from a mentality where you're constantly asking yourself, what do I need? What actions do I need to take? What do I need to do in order to advance something as opposed to asking your question, a question, who do I need to be? Right. Doing and being are two different things. And we have developed the vocabulary and the, I guess, act activities for doing in our society, but we're less good at learning how to be. And so for me specifically, personally, I'm trying to figure out that question of like, how do I actively learn to relate without catastrophizing in my head, without 
one of the things that social media does is it causes us to turn pe- to see people not as people to relate to, but as people to see as sort of instruments to advance a certain ideology or advance a certain position, right? How can I, because that's very toxic. So how can I get rid of that, that way in which I have seen other people and start instead to learn how to relate? So that's how that dilemma is manifesting in my life personally right now. How does that, how does that tie in with your Christian upbringing? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I have some sensibilities about that, but I'm sort of teasing it out. I mean, the Jungian Carl Jung's sort of interpretation of Christianity is very different from the traditional, I guess, religious interpretation of Christianity. Jung saw Christianity as a kind of symbolic story that would give people the capacity to take responsibility for their own suffering, basically, which is very different from the, it's, it's very different to say, Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and now I am saved. And that is my relationship with Jesus. It's very different to say that as opposed to saying, Jesus was a figure who took responsibility for his own suffering and modeled a way to take responsibility for one's own suffering. And so that that is what I'm going to try to do in my own way, right? That's a very different relationship with Jesus the man versus Jesus, the, the deity. So I think I'm leading, leaning more into the direction of the latter. Hmm. It was trying me that my, or my understanding, the genius of Christianity from a psychological point of view, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a theologian nor a psychologist. So (laughs) mine uh, is that it's not about being nor necessarily relating, but rather about serving. And it Mm -hmm. is true that if you serve others, before yourself, you actually transcend yourself. Mm, and mm-hmm. that is where you will find not only what is most meaningful, but also it will bring you the most happiness and joy mm-hmm. and self-fulfillment. And, and so that for me, when I understood that and understood the genius that, that, that this works, even if you remove the metaphysics from mm. Christianity, from Jesus, that the message is true as well psychologically and mm. it will set you free actually in how you act in the world. Yeah, I do think that if you center service as a way of life, if that's what a person gets from Christianity, then that's that's right. Like your life will be fulfilled. And yet I struggle with picking a religion <laughs> to convert to because so many wisdom traditions have that same message. It's almost, I mean, I, the, the way I relate to it is that that God, whatever you think God is, is manifested in all of these different wisdom traditions. And for me personally, I find it fulfilling to sample from a lot of them, which I am doing right now <laughs> in my own personal life. What does, what does sampling mean? Does that mean believing it or, or learning from it? I don't know what the word belief means anymore, really. So, <laughs> so I would say more learning from it. So it's, it's not really a pick and mix religion, rather, because, I mean, that's a great thing to do is to is to read about all of those. And there's yeah. so much wisdom to take from. But even bring this back to theory of enchantment, why mm-hmm. I like it so much from that perspective is that in your approach, you're actually serving the people you're trying to help because you yeah. are you're not saying you need to change and be like this. Right. Instead, you're saying what happened? Like, how are you? What yeah. happens? How have you got to this place where you have this kind of, you, maybe it's hate or maybe it's animosity towards yeah. others and you're not trying to convert them. Instead, you're trying to love them and, and help them at, through whatever difficulties they have. And I, so I see that as a very Christian approach or perhaps there's other uh, yeah. religions that you could also be considered in the so same. There's definitely, I can never sort of exercise myself of Christianity <laughs> just because it's a part of my upbringing. You know, it's, it's a part of the paradigm through which I, or the perspective through which I view the world. Uh, so I can never get rid of it in that sense. So it's definitely there within theory of enchantment. Um, I think it's more what the metaphor that I would use is like cultivating a garden or the idea of attend, attending to a garden is something that really resonates with me. I have a lot of plants. I'm into that. So, so theory of enchantment is sort of like trying to cultivate gardens within people in a sense and bring forth their higher selves, if you will, through the process of very long and patient 
kind of attending to. So, mm-hmm. by the way, I forgot to mention, because you asked me for a book recommendation. Um, yes, please. Amos Oz, A Tale of Love and Darkness, is an excellent book. And is that the Israeli literature you were referring yes. to? Earlier? Yes. Okay. And, what, and, what, and why should I read that book? You should read that book because it doesn't, instead of trafficking in boxes to describe the Israeli and Palestinian communities, it uses the language of the human condition. It understands tragedy. Um, I mean, it really understands tragedy because one of the interesting things that I've learned about the human condition is that if we feel angry about something or if we are experiencing anger towards someone, if we don't allow ourselves to drop into sorrow, then that anger can fester and eat us up and eat us alive. And then we can just really, you know, um, totally create havoc (laughs) or wreak havoc as a result of that anger, which is like fire that burns us up. But if we can drop into sorrow, this is what where the blues tradition comes from in America. If we can drop into sorrow and allow ourselves to sit with the sorrow and allow ourselves to mourn, then that can actually help us develop the capacity for empathy and compassion, both for our own long suffering and for others. And that's what A Tale of Love and Darkness does. It's a sorrowful book about the traumas and the pains of both Israelis and Palestinians. And that in turn enables the reader to cultivate empathy and compassion for both communities. Mm. Well, uh, certainly that's absolutely jumped to the top of my reading list there. Um, (laughs) So the way you're talking about Christianity is, I mean, this is very personal, so we can just move along. But you you sort of, it's almost as if you're, you're just, you're saying you can't escape it, but you don't necessarily believe it. Is that what you're sort of implying? I don't believe... It's like when Jordan Peterson says it depends on what you mean by believe. You know, he has this typical retort that he does when people ask him similar questions. And it's it's hard to give an answer, Winston. It's like I have much more of a symbolic relationship with that's the difference. I don't take these stories literally anymore. I take them symbolically. Now, some people will say, oh, that means you don't believe it. And some people will say, oh, that means you do believe it. So it depends on your relationship with symbolism. I grew up in a very literalist house. And so I definitely am no longer a literalist, but I certainly believe in it symbolically. So, mm, Okay. So you, you, you as you said, uh, you're brought up on the Old Testament. Yeah. Literally, but, it's, but those stories are just as valuable. Yeah. Symbolically as they were. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think they're even more valuable <laughs> symbolically. I think... I can no longer read religious texts, any religious texts, literally. They don't make sense to me, literally. Like the story of Adam and Eve doesn't make sense to me, literally. But symbolically, and Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this in his in some of his lectures, symbolically, it's an incredible story. Symbolically, it actually makes sense. Well, literally, it doesn't make sense to me. The, I guess, and I'm, I'm conscious that I'm going to run, eventually run into, hit into a wall where I'm not going to be able to express myself. Uh, no! <laughs> but uh, when it comes to the story of Christ, mm-hmm. which is the great story, mm-hmm. and you and not just symbolically, but uh, also all his parables are unbelievably mm-hmm. helpful. And it was a radical philosophy sure. that came and really w- goes against so much human na- nature. It's a it's a really brilliant and radical philosophy, which you can take so much from. But it also has to be true for it Mm. to be truly does it uh, why (laughs) because because if it's not true then it's not to be taken why but why take any of it seriously what do you mean by true if he is not the son of god if he did not die for our sins and rise again Mm. then then none of it can needs to be taken seriously it's just another story i have so many book recommendations for you but i don't want (laughs) to someone else to argue with me no no it's not it's once i've shifted from a literal perspective to a symbolic perspective it's a completely different paradigm and it's impossible to capture in a you know 60 minute podcast okay but like okay winston talk to me you are an artist you are a musician right music is one of those things that is symbolic right 
I mean, music is not a literal experience in the sense that I think of the word literalism. It's a symbolic experience. I hear music and I'm expanded. I hear a certain melody and somehow I'm filled with an emotion. How's that possible? I didn't even, you know. Um, <laughs> so so music is, is something that is an instrument that can give us a symbolic experience and so it doesn't have to be, I don't even know what it would mean for music to be literally true. I don't even, that's, I don't even know what that would mean. And yet we know that music is true. So I don't know if that made any sense, <laughs> but. Yeah, I think, the, I think the way the analogy works is you, if I use my analogy about Christ, then it would be to say that you, the music doesn't have to be literally true and you can, you don't, you don't ignore it. But I think from a philosophical point of view, there's so much to be, you of course can take from all religions as, as you've described. And, and I do, by the way, as well. Uh, I read across them. Uh, across the, but if it's not true, then so what? A little bit. It, it, uh, or I guess maybe I would go into saying, if, if it, maybe this is more into sort of Dostoevsky territory, but if it's not true, then anything is permissible. And so we have a, you know, we, can, we, we choose to take good from these parables and, and these stories. But we're not obliged to. Uh, but we need to be obliged to. I uh, know I'm getting now. I'm getting. Um, I think I'm out of my depth. <laughs> no, I understand. I understand what you mean. I think. Um, and yet, there's part of me wants to answer that if a person is not of their own volition compelled to serve, if you will, to serve the divine. Let's put it that way. In some capacity, then, and and if they are simply doing it out of convention. Right. If they're simply doing it because they have been mandated to do it because of the society that they were born in, etc., then one could say that that is actually not a genuine relationship with the divine in the first place. And then the point is missed. The actual mm. point is missed. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll tweet at you, my <laughs> <laughs> I probably won't see it because I I've been taking breaks from Twitter, but I'll see it eventually. <laughs> Uh, that's probably been quite good for you to take on Twitter. It's, yeah, it's been incredible, honestly. Um, I'll, I'll fill you in. It's been great fun. Uh, Elon Musk is <laughs> taking over, um, and then or later, maybe not taking over. He's going to bring Trump back. It's going oh. crazy. It's so much. So exciting. Wow. Yeah, super exciting. <laughs> um, um, so uh, what's next for Theory of Enchantment? You say you hope to be the number one. That'd but- be so cool. What? Who is number one? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, it's definitely not me. It's it's definitely not me. No, no, it's definitely not me. The entire landscape, it's hard to tell, like, what anyone's doing or, like, how big they are. But I have big dreams, (laughs) Big, big hopes and dreams. You know, I look at companies like Apple. I look at companies like Disney. I look at companies like Nike. These are all companies that I deeply admire just for the what they were able to do, the impact they were able to have in the world. And I would love Theory of Enchantment to have the same magnitude of impact in the world. And it would be really cool also because because theory of enchantment is such a, it's almost like a hospitality thing because it's trying to teach people the art of care and the, and that art of relationship. And if a company whose essential service that it's selling is to teach people how to love could be as big as Apple, that would be just like, like I would, I would feel that my life was fulfilled basically. That's great. Well, I I um I fully support your uh, your dreams there. The Thank you. The theory of enchantment. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. That is not what I am saying. <laughs> Let it be known, folks. This is not what I'm saying at all. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Oh, I did want to ask you some questions, by the way, about um because you know. I told you this. I'm a huge fan of Mumford and Sons. I, I was a huge fan since I was 15 years old. You guys were the first band to like, I don't know, put Play-Doh into music form for the, for the 21st century. And I am curious about how some of those bands lyrics resonate with you, given everything that's happened um, since you left. I, I, I wanted to ask you about a couple lyrics, if that's okay. <laughs> To see if they like stir something in you, or well, if you, you know, those you know. three guys are very talented, and um, and they're three great songwriters, mm. and uh, 
Um, I couldn't possibly, uh, I don't know what songs you're going to reference, but like. They're all from Cy No More, for the record. <laughs> so if they're, so, they're, if they're songs that one of the other guys has written, I'll be like you, a fan of the, okay. of the song. And so, but I don't know if I'll be able to give you any more intel uh, than the next fan. Um, if that's a, if that's a, that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. Let's, let's try one or two. Just, you know, just to see what happens. <laughs> well, I should actually say, I only wrote one song on that record. So Which one um, was it? And that was uh, Winter Winds. So I, uh, yeah, I, uh, so almost certainly I'm coming at this as a fan like you. But I want you to think of these lyrics, though, in light of everything that's happened to you. Not simply as like an abstract thing, you know, hanging, hanging in the wind. <laughs> I know it's symbolic, but it might also be true, you know? Okay, which one do I want to ask you about? <laughs> I will ask you about just this one. Love, it will not betray you, dismay, or enslave you. It will set you free. Be more like the man you were made to be. I, you know what? <laughs> no, that's, I'm glad you, you choose that one. That's, a, that's part of a, that's a lyric from the title track for the record, Sigh No More. And uh, lyrics are written by uh, the singer Marcus. And it's a, those are great lyrics. And I, um, and they, they are sort of, hearing you say that again, they do resonate in a, in a new way in that, and again, it's, it kind of is a, uh, uh, you know, it depends on what you mean by love, I guess, but, um, <laughs> but if, if love is, if truth is any way part of love and, and the pursuit of ideals above the worldly, and which is, uh, yeah, a wor- love is not a worldly thing, even though it's within the world, it's, it's a, a force greater than, than this world. And, and in pursuit of that, it is liberating, even mm. if you give up, even if that means, and it, it meant for me, I guess, giving up a lot of worldly things. I have been liberated by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, yeah, I do believe that to be very, very true and a very great lyric. Awesome. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you should tell your listeners, because when we met in New York, mm-hmm. confessed that... Uh, you had written in lockdown 1.0. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, in uh, 2020, uh, you had written, spent your time creating a kind of somewhat of a, a thesis mm-hmm. on uh, the Sino More album. And um, uh, I think you probably know more about that uh, record lyrically and philosophically than perhaps any other human being on, on earth, including the authors. <laughs> I find it very hard to believe, but <laughs> I will certainly take the compliment. Yes, I, I did write in a, a basically a, a fan book on Sai No More, where I took each lyric or t- took each song and analyzed all of the lyrics and analyzed all of the references. I'm sure I missed some references, but analyzed all of the references that I was aware of and I didn't have anything else to do. So <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> well, it's pretty impressive and I hope you publish it one day. I've certainly enjoyed Thank you. it. Um, Thank you. Maybe I'll link to really it cool. for this, for this podcast. That's super tight. Um, it's certainly better uh, use of time than what I did in my lockdown is <laughs> I, I decided I was going to write the history of the banjo. Oh, so wow. That's I, cool. I, I did all the research and, and read all the books. I think and that's by cool. The, way, the history of the banjo is pretty amazing um, history because it's basically the history of America. And, and yeah. it really is a really dark history, but there's also some real beauty to it as well. Mm. Uh, an instrument born uh, very much that uh, could not have existed if not for the, the slave trade mm-hmm. and uh, kind of came out of the Caribbean and eventually North uh, you know, it was it was created from the memory of various instruments across Africa, mm. um, and many years after those Africans had, had moved uh, or been moved, been taken to um, the Western Hemisphere, and it was and because all the different Africans were from different parts of you know, it was a fate a fate of memory. They didn't even necessarily have the same language to speak with each other, and, yeah. and the instrument that came out was the kind of collective memory, and it then wow. evolved. Uh, it evolved over time. Then it kind of interacts with white, poor white communities, and 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 actually, there's from that dark origin. There's some amazing stories of how 
poor whites and poor blacks started making music together, and this would have been hundreds of years later, with the banjo at the, the center, and, and it's and, and then it goes back into darkness again with the minstrel show, mm. which is white white people in in black face. And that's actually how it first came to my country, England, is an American mm. minstrel show. Uh, a guy called Sweeney, I think, in the early 19th century. I can't remember exactly. And actually, there's a, there was, a, I think, a, an African-American banjo player who's buried in Brompton Cemetery in the middle of London. And he came over to teach Queen Victoria's son, then wow. Prince of Wales, wanted to learn the banjo. And this guy came over as part of a tour and then stayed to teach Prince banjo, something like that. But anyway, that wow. information is... Anyway, there's a, and then so um, anyway, I did all that research and uh, maybe I one day do, I have actually been asked by a college to do a sort of lecture on on the history of the banjo uh, for Ralston College, which is a new college that actually Jordan Peterson is the mm. chancellor of in Savannah, Georgia. Which I, I may I may do that. Uh, I've got to dig up my uh, uh, work work on it. But yeah, anyway, it's a the, the story of the banjo is the story of America and with all this tragedy and beauty tied up in one. That sounds like a very cool thing that you did during <laughs> the beginning of it's 2020. It's fucking geeky. I'm not sure anyone wants to read it. I think I watched a lecture, but I'm not going to read a book. Well, listen, listen, I think the key is to just include music, like include musical experiences as a part of the lecture. I think that would really have it come alive. I would totally attend that lecture if it had the music. <laughs> I'd be more inclined. If it had the music. <laughs> <laughs> I would be more inclined to attend if it had the music component. I'm curious, are you working on any any music? Are you producing any music right now? I am, yeah. I've been I'm working on a, a few projects, um, doing some songwriting. I was doing songwriting through the kept that sort of uh, that muscle um exercise mm. through the pandemic and um working on a record or well, I'm not really I'm not sure I can say yet because okay. Uh, but I'm working on I'm working on a record with someone we mutually know. But I'll, I'll, I'll let you know in, sure. in, in, in due course, and and then hopefully over the next few months I'll, I'll be able to sort of talk more about it. But, okay. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know for sure. Do, do your fans know about your music? <laughs> well, now that you said something, Winston, um, <laughs> I'm sure some of them know. I've definitely talked about it here and there on Twitter and stuff like that. I do have an album. It's a very like poorly produced album, but it is on Spotify. And I produced most of it in 2018. And I was having a musical year, you know, and um, I am slowly but surely getting back into music production. Like I've been putting together some sketches of some new songs in the past few weeks. So I feel I feel the the spirit is moving me again to towards yeah. that. Um, but I also have a, a few sets on on a SoundCloud. So I also like to DJ in my spare time, and I also have a few other songs that haven't been released on Spotify that that are on SoundCloud. My SoundCloud, if anyone wants to check that out. So thank you for that layup. <laughs> I set them up and you slap them. Um, no, it's great. I I was really uh, taken aback when I heard your music um, first. Because I, I remember you, you sampled uh, something Soweto, who uh, yes, who I love so much. So yeah, good. absolutely so good. love that guy. Um, yeah. So I was thrilled that there's someone else outside of South Africa who'd actually heard of it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean that as a dig to something because he's yeah. sick. I just he's incredible. I can't yeah. I can't wait to you know when he comes to New. I mean I would love to see him in South Africa, but when he comes to New York, I would love to see him perform. Is he coming? No, I don't. He doesn't have any plans, but I'm just I'm just like speaking that into existence, you know. <laughs> but then also your DJ sets, um, uh, I enjoyed them as well. And it's, it's I, I, one thing I've noticed in this in this new world I found myself in of uh, writers and thinkers and intellectuals like yourself is that there there are a lot of young thinkers who have musical bones and mm. one of the projects that I can't yet talk about in. He kind of is kind of based on that, and 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 I wonder if, uh, for well, for example, uh, Coleman Hughes, who's uh, in New York as well, he, he's yeah. just put his album out, and um, you know he's a great writer and a great uh, great young thinker and and, and um, a great guy, and and there's many people like that, and I I, I wonder if there's a cool way of bringing it all together, mm. um, and maybe it's a symposium, maybe it's a collaborative record, or but I think that's that's something I, I'd. I've been, I've been very curious about, and maybe we we should talk about that. 
Yeah. Uh, or camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be very cool. I mean, that would be something else. Can you imagine like Coleman Hughes on one track, you on another track, me on another track? That would be that would be sick, be actually. Nice. Yeah. That'd be pretty tight. Um, I'm definitely down to to chat after if you'd like. But in general, what I've been trying to do is help inform my intellectual sort of takes with the art more and have mm. all of my have my thought processes be informed by the artistry, which re- for me requires being off social media more, uh, allowing myself to grow my capacities to be receptive, right? Mm-hmm. Because social media is constantly like, it's creating AD, ADD in us, you know? It's like, we're constantly vying for likes and tweets and, yeah. and then we use the capacity to sit and to be with what is, as opposed to constantly trying to get somewhere, or, you know, do something. So that's why that's part of my uh, attempt to cultivate relationship, the art of relationship in my life as mm-hmm. well. And um, so I want the art to lead whatever I do, really, the artistic orientation. Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, horrible is uh, it, 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 the, the sort of uh, the idea that in hundreds of years, this kind of stamp we leave on the world is our is our Twitter feed or our, yeah. our search history, which actually <laughs> probably is the stamp, you know, if, if our ancestors probably will look that shit up, which is a, a horrible thought. Um, but um, much better to invest that energy into creating beautiful things and uh, music and, and art uh, in all its uh, myriad forms than, than just tweeting into the abyss. So yes. I'll, I'll have to follow your lead and try and spend a little <laughs> less time on social media. Go into music. Enchanting though social media is. Yes. Oh, goodness. It's like enchanting in the sense that, you know, the, like the sirens in Odysseus who, exactly. you know, yeah, it's like exactly. that. But it's not actually, you know, if you if you don't plug your ears or if you don't have your men plug their ears, they might, they might drown in the sea. So yeah. it's something that we have to be very cautious of. Amen. Well, on that note, thank you for coming on the Heart Speaks podcast. This podcast, by the way, went in so many different <laughs> directions that I was not expecting at all, but I'm really happy with it. I'm grateful to you for coming on and having a conversation. Thank and you. Um, I, let me know when you're in New York and we'll hang. And in the meantime, cool. I wish you the very best on all of the projects that you are working on. Thank you, Chloe. And uh, I look forward to seeing New York. And uh, if your uh, listeners enjoyed uh, this conversation, I'm going to do a little... Yeah, do it, do it, do it. So, um, <laughs> I hope that they might enjoy uh, Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall. Uh, it's a spectator show um, interviewing people in the creative industries. Uh, so I hope that they might enjoy that as well. But anyway, Chloe, I'm really grateful for you ha- having me on. And uh, you're just wonderful in every way. Oh, thank you, Winston. I hope to see you soon. Take care.